Welcome to BBB National Program's Accountability Studio podcast. This episode is a bit of a case study of one global company with an interesting approach to data privacy accountability, transparency, and trust. We're recording this episode on October 1st, 2021. It has been exactly three months since we recorded our first episode about the cross-border privacy rules titled The Past and Future of Privacy Accountability, Is CBPR a Model? Of course, in that episode, with some help from our Department of Commerce guest, we answered that question with a resounding yes. This time around, we're building on that conversation from the business perspective by focusing on one company that has led the way on CBPRs and possibly on data privacy practices generally. I'm Coben Zweifel Keegan, Deputy Director of Privacy Initiatives here at BBB National Programs, and I'll be serving as your host today. With me are two privacy experts whom I deeply admire, uh, Harvey Jang, Vice President and Chief Privacy Officer at Cisco. Hi, Coben. Thanks. Happy to be here. Excited to have you. And my colleague, Josh Harris, the Director of Global Privacy Initiatives at BBB National Programs. Hey, Coleman. Hey, Harvey. Glad to be here. Yep. I'm so glad to have you both here for this conversation. Let me lay the groundwork really quickly. Um, First, just a quick note on why this is an important topic for the Accountability Studio. As an independent provider of privacy certifications, assessments, and dispute resolution, our role at BBB National Program's Global Privacy Division is to help businesses confidently demonstrate that their privacy practices are built on the principles that form the building blocks for global privacy standards. That's exactly what Cisco has done on its own and through its embrace of independent privacy certifications and dispute resolution mechanisms. So what better way to understand the business case for voluntary privacy certifications than from a business that has them core to its approach to data privacy? As some more table setting really quickly, let me just explain a few terms we'll be using today as I like to do. We're going to be talking again about APEC in this episode. So let me break down what that is really quickly. APEC is the Asia Pacific Economic Cooperation, a regional economic forum with 21 member economies around the Pacific Rim. CBPR is the cross-border privacy rules system, as I just said above, which as I mentioned, is a voluntary framework that was created by those APEC economies. And PRP stands for the Privacy Recognition for Processors, which is a compatible framework that was specifically designed for vendors that work with CBPR certified companies. For more background on all of this, of course, you could check out our earlier episode, which kind of laid the foundation for this episode. Josh, I think I'll kick it over to you to start the conversation about Cisco, you first noticed that there was something special about how Cisco approaches its privacy notices. Could you kind of explain what you saw there? Sure. Um, You know, to take a step back, you think about what kind of mechanisms are available, transfer mechanisms are available to you uh, based on frameworks. There's really just a handful of them in the world. There's the suite of privacy shields. So that would be EU, Swiss, and UK privacy shields. Um, Hopefully we'll see those uh, re-implemented again before too long. There's binding corporate rules. And then there is the pair of APEC certifications, CBPRs and PRPs, as Coben had just mentioned. And when you take a look at the privacy notice, the online privacy statement from Cisco, you'll see that they are a participant in all of them. 
And that is, well, first of all, puts them in some pretty rarefied air. Uh, but secondly, um, behind the scenes of those certifications, and I, and I will turn it over to Harvey to explain all of this in detail, is a global approach to data privacy. And what strikes me as so interesting is that Cisco was able to develop this program and then demonstrate it across multiple lenses in order to get multiple regulatory benefits. But again, it's using broadly the same program. Um, so when we're talking about interoperability, we're talking about efficiency. You know, what we are talking about from a policy perspective is what you are looking at operationally uh, from what Harvey and team have done. Great. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. So Harvey, I think um, that's a perfect segue to hearing more from you about kind of the philosophy behind your approach and and why you why you ended up being the rarefied company with all, all of the certifications. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for us, it was really driven by customer demand and, and really a way to demonstrate our accountability. And like, how do we prove it to our customers? Because we're often getting those questions like, are you GDPR compliant or do you comply with Japan's privacy law or Singapore's? And we wanted to set out a global program, right? That would be consistent no matter where your data is. If Cisco is handling it, this is to the standard of care that we will protect your data and honor data subject rights. And so looking at that, it's like, how do we demonstrate or how do we get comfort that our global program meets this global standards? And uh, the easiest way to do that really was to use the regulators themselves and use the accountability agents out of APEC that are approved by the regulators, use the Department of Commerce that was driving Privacy Shield, and use the EU regulators themselves to look at our program, to look at how we set up our policies, how we set up our practices and standards, and whether they believe it met their standards within those regions. And so thankfully we did, and <laughs> we passed uh, all, all of those checks and having that approval from the regulators in the sense that we the direction we're going, the standards, the policies, and our programs really aligned to GDPR and what the EU regulators are looking for, aligned to the APEC um, member economies and what's expected in the APEC privacy framework. And again, with Privacy Shield, when it was there, what commerce and uh, the EU were looking for in privacy. That's really interesting. Where did you first start when um, going about that? What, uh, how did you get from the idea that you want to prove yourself, I guess, and 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 prove your that your practices meet that to um, actually having those demonstrable markers. Yeah, we actually started on our certification journey with the APEX certifications and APEX cross border privacy rules system uh, out out of the gate when I joined Cisco in 2016. That was the first uh, certification we wanted to pursue. Certainly, we signed up to Privacy Shield uh, and Safe Harbor previously, but um, that didn't have that same rigor of review as uh, the APEC cross-border privacy rule system did and the follow-on privacy recognition for processors where you have an accountability agent really go through your program in detail, looking at the policies and basically doing a tabletop audit to make sure you have everything lined up that's consistent with the APEC framework and answering the 50 questionnaire and providing proof and evidence to satisfy a third party independent assessor that your program is up to snuff. And so we were able to start with the APEC one first, um, in part because binding corporate rules takes a lot longer. Uh, and we can talk a little bit about the rigor and the timeline uh, to go through regulatory approval in the EU. But with APEC, 
going through that and looking at the APEC privacy framework where it's principles based and really the standard uh, for privacy that's recognized globally, right? If you look at the member economies uh, within APEC, you have China, Russia, US, and if we're all agreeing that these are the right principles for privacy uh, to get consensus, we're pretty much the right principles and at the, the highest level. And so um, the APEC framework was the first one we embarked on to, to get certification under, uh, under the privacy framework there. Could you speak more about where the impetus came from? Like, why isn't it enough just to do, just to do right with your privacy practices? Why do you need that external indicator? Yeah. And it's interesting that this is actually evolving largely from the security space. Like in, in the past or in the olden days, there was a, a, this notion of implicit trust, like trust me, I'm Cisco or trust me, you've been doing business for years. It's fine. Everything will be lovely. But then things started shifting to this trust, but verify. And now we're in this world of zero trust and zero trust architecture, where the presumption is you're not trustworthy. You got to prove to me first that I can trust you before I'll engage and do business with you. And one of the challenges is like, how do you, how do you prove that out of the box? Right. And the first, uh, interactions with with customers primarily how do you show them that we're trustworthy quickly and the easiest way was to have third party certifications and validation right and so an independent third party like i was saying with this accountability agent is looking at our program and saying look the way that you handle personal data the policies the values that your company has set forth meet the standard of care and so having that external validation, so it's not a matter of, hey, just trust me because I said we're wonderful. A third party uh, looked at the program and, and also evaluated and tested us. Uh, and so you have that uh, kind of seal of approval uh, from an independent uh, assessor. And so I thought that that carried a lot of weight. And I didn't think we were going to talk about it a little bit later, but we've done some surveys to check that. And what we found more recently is like over 90% of our uh, of the folks surveyed, and we surveyed thousands of people around the world and indicated that these external certifications matter uh, to them in the buying decision as part of the due diligence that they're doing on vendors to at least show that we have a mature privacy program and the right uh, uh, policies in place. And Harvey, when you think about, for example, the type of organization that is performing that certification, I mean, within the APEC context, only an organization that has been endorsed by 21 countries, consensus, unanimous, can perform these certifications. So, I mean, when you're talking about rigor and confidence in that third party, I don't think there is probably a more rigorous process, at least right now globally, than there is for the accountability agent approval under those APEC frameworks. That's right. It's, it's always the question from the customer, can I use your product in a compliant manner in my jurisdiction? And when we have these certifications that you're saying getting um, all of them that were out there at the time at the enterprise level, it really covers over 50 jurisdictions. And so it gives the customer some comfort that at least directionally we're, we're going the right way. And there's that respect for personal data and privacy as a fundamental human right in the way that we do business. Yeah, that's really interesting. I love that idea of zero trust, and I think it fits so neatly into the vision behind um, CBPRs and, and any kind of multi-layered accountability governance structure. Um, yeah, Josh, exactly. You're right, I think, on 
CBPRs is a fascinating example of a um, accountability structure where we've where there's a lot of rigor put on the on each layer basically and not just it, it, it it's hard to become an accountability agent you have and it's equally hard to become certified so um, I think that's a an, an really interesting model in a world where zero trust becomes the norm I guess let's pivot a little bit I'm really interested in hearing more about kind of the nuts and bolts of implementation um, how it's one thing to say yeah we want to it, on a policy level we want to go about getting these certifications we believe in in this idea of of proving our or showing our work of proving what we're doing um, but how did you make it happen um, and particularly how I know one big refrain uh, among privacy professionals often is just the difficulty with it getting internal stakeholder buy-in at various levels. Um, could you talk a little bit about that, Harvey, and, and how you made all this work? Yeah, yeah. So it, I think shifting the mindset, you know, a little bit away from compliance. I know that with GDPR and the threat of a 4% fine, like that really got the attention of the board of directors and, and many of the executives and started putting some energy behind privacy and, and doing it right for fear of this fine. But when we looked at that, that just really wasn't enough, right? The fine is floating out there and yeah, it's scary. 4% is material to most companies, but for a fine to be levied, the, the behavior would have to be egregious, right? And um, first it would be the regulator attempting to issue the fine and drive corrective action. And if you disagreed, you would take that to court and that could get litigated for years before any fine is actually paid. And so it's there and it was looming, but that wasn't the real risk. Uh, with that in the backdrop, we really took a look at privacy from a business imperative and business perspective, like what's the actual risk to revenue? And when we looked at our products and services and customers that were asking for pretty much the same information as what uh, the law was requiring us to be ready to provide in terms of transparency, uh, we had to meet the customer's demand, right? Not just for GDPR in Europe, but all those other countries around the world that modeled their privacy law around the core rights of GDPR. And so looking at that and the data sets that we handled from a, a product perspective uh, and revenue risk, it was about a 20 to 25% uh, revenue at risk. If we couldn't answer the basic questions around what data is in play, what you're doing with it, where is the processing taking place? Who else is touching it? And how are you protecting it? How are you honoring data subject rights? So basically the elements that were required under GDPR and the ROPA of records of processing and the data protection impact assessments. So all those things that the law required, our customers were demanding as well, right? And so when we flipped it and said, you know what, okay, forget about GDPR compliance for a moment, right? Uh, Think about the 20 to 25% revenue at risk if we can't uh, answer these questions to our customers and provide the transparency that they want. If we're not handling their data correctly and appropriately, we're going to lose business. And that's immediate. That's not appealable entirely in the customer's discretion. If they don't trust us, that there's no deal. And it's not appealable, right? And you can try to convince them it's fine, but once you lose that trust, uh, it's over. And so when we shifted things and said, look, do this because revenue uh, and the revenue risk and revenue impact, 
both positively and, and negatively in a sense, right? Like when we had, when we finally went through it and we call them the privacy data sheets. And so we published them on our uh, trust portal. So it's available um, publicly. It outlines what we're doing with data. And by coming out and coming proactively, sharing what we're doing, that really helped build the trust uh, with our prospective customers and existing customers, you know, that we understand what's happening with data and we're willing to be transparent about it and held to account, not just by you in a contract, but that's held to account publicly for our practices. And so that, that really carried a lot of weight and really driving privacy as a business imperative, not just a compliance exercise, change the dynamic and the momentum behind our privacy program. Nice. And, and you were saying earlier that you've, you've done some of those surveys of, of end users or, or customers on, uh, and, and how they care about privacy. Um, I wonder if you could speak maybe more about the results of those. And I know that also, I think one thing I've been thinking about a lot recently has been redress, redress for data subjects and, um, and consumers to be able to turn somewhere uh, for actual results when they find that an organization does not meet its commitments to privacy. Um, and so I think that mechanisms like CBPR and PRP and Privacy Shield that have those built-in dispute resolution measures may make a difference there. Uh, for you, is that something, is that part of what redress looks like on the ground? Yeah, of, of course, anytime there, there's an issue, we do want to resolve it amicably and quickly and just with within, uh, you know, our customer, right, and directly with our customers. So we do have mechanisms that they can reach out directly to Cisco, um, complete a web form and, uh, and raise the issue that gets the attention and response, right? And we have the SLAs in place, the tracking and all of that to make sure we're responding to uh, data subjects and to our customers rapidly and quickly and hopefully addressing their questions or, or concerns before it goes to third-party dispute resolution. And, uh, and, and but what is helpful too and accelerates the program is I think gives people that comfort that they know they can go to an independent third party. So for some reason, we can't resolve it amicably with, within our, our own team, then BVB provides a service as a part of the accountability agent services that there would be a dispute resolution arm for us. And of course, we'd rather them go to BVB before going to the regulators and um, hopefully come to uh, common ground. Thankfully, this has all been theoretical for us. We haven't had <laughs> issues uh, come up that we weren't able to resolve directly with the customer and and uh, usually it's, you know, questions where they just want a little bit more detail around uh, some of the processing activity and, and we have that and make that available to them. And, you know, th what's interesting about that, Harvey, is that this actually goes to a really concrete example of interoperability because you'd note that both in Privacy Shield, all three of them, US, UK, Swiss, and the CBPR and PRP systems, there is this requirement for this third party dispute resolution mechanism and the reporting requirements that have to be done annually. So, you know, when you when you think about using these things, these services holistically, there's ways in which you can leverage them um, to be able to kind of get to a sort of single process that would allow you to account for the obligations under, well, I guess named five different but very similar frameworks. Um, and that's really, you know, what we're trying to get at when we talk about uh, interoperability, practically speaking. It's that, you know, there are concrete streamlining initiatives that you can undertake that can, can save you time and money and complication. 
So, you know, not only does an accountability agent like the services we provide help to sort of unburden, hopefully, any issues that might eventually need to be escalated by Cisco, but we don't think there will be such issues. What we would be able to do there is to offer that unburdening across multiple frameworks. And that's really that that really is kind of goes to exactly what it is the governments have been trying to incentivize these organizations to do when they're talking about these public and private partnerships. Right, for sure. And as we're a buyer as well, and so Cisco is often a customer, we do look for that, right, in the certifications of our vendors. And it's just comforting and it adds to trust that look, for, for whatever reason, I can't resolve uh, a dispute with you. I have an independent third party I can go to for quick resolution, right? If I have to go to a regulator, again, it's going to take years <laughs> before I get a result from them. But uh, if they signed up to CBPRs or or other of these frameworks where there's the accountability agent and dispute resolution arm, the timeline and SLA for resolution is swift. Like we're talking a matter of days and weeks uh, that we're required to respond and to get that result. And just knowing that's there just in case uh, really adds and uh, bolsters the trust. Yeah, and that that has been how it has worked really. Uh, I've seen that on the ground uh, in in the role that I play uh, running these dispute resolution programs that we have, um, I think my one takeaway there that really echoes what you were just saying is that um, in the rare instances where we have had dispute resolution cases with companies, um, it's, I really like the model that we've adopted where it's up to the company to first address the issue directly with the data subject. And then if that person isn't satisfied or if the company didn't actually address the issue, they can come to BBB national programs and, and go through the dispute resolution process. And we have seen it's, it's speedy and often gets to, it will get to what the consumer really wants instead of necessarily just looking at what the way a regulator would frame it under the exact rule of the law. Um, You just mentioned the, Biz, your trust in your business partners and your business relationships, and we've kind of talked about trust from the consumer angle. I'm wondering if there's also an element to uh, trust in your uh, in your business that your business partners uh, are looking to do. The certifications assist with that. Is that something that you're considering? Yeah, for sure. So the, we do look for external certifications. And I was mentioning even more broadly in that survey, it does impact the buying decision. And as a buyer, right, vendor management is a major risk <laughs> for, for all companies and making sure that your vendors are living up to your standard of care. And that's cascaded down. And so we do have to do a level of due diligence on any vendor that we engage. And so with these external certifications, it, it does make it easier and accelerates the due diligence process. So if you have, uh, again, the APEX certifications or binding corporate rules out of the EU, that gives us some comfort that you have a real privacy program in place. And uh, the artifacts that are available for us to review are make it easier for us to do our due diligence, like the findings report that you get after an APEX certification that outlines um, how you're handling personal data. We would review that of a prospective vendor to understand where they where they're going with privacy right and they have the certification and then you have that additional documentation and support behind it 
We also look for like the ISA certifications and SOC 2 certifications as well, and the statement of applicability. So again, you have an independent third party that's really done the heavy lifting and the legwork of really drilling down into the vendor's program to make sure that they meet the privacy and security requirements at an international well-recognized standard. And so that really accelerates it. I think we were talking before, if you think of the way things were when we used to travel, there was like TSA pre or, or uh, clear or global entry where you really put up all this information up front and someone else has validated and gone through and you're trustworthy. So you get to go through much faster uh, through airport screening and security. You don't have to take off your shoes, empty your bag and, and get the pat down. You go through a little quicker. So the same idea with these certifications, if you do the legwork up front, get externally validated, then it makes it easier for a buyer to trust you. Do you think that's true throughout the ecosystem, not just for, for you all and how you think about vendors, but is, do you think that's the way of the future here, that everybody's checking up on each other? Yeah, we're, we're actually seeing that. And we're, we've launched yesterday that what we call the new uh, uh, trust standard, where one of those elements is how to prove uh, that you're trustworthy and external certifications Again, from our surveys and what our customers have been asking for and what we ask for as a buyer ourselves, like it really is becoming more and more important in this zero trust environment where you need that validation from an independent third party. Yeah, that definitely tracks with uh, what we've been seeing on the ground as well as we keep building out these mechanisms. Um, I guess let's turn now. We've been talking about the details of how we uh, implement and pursue these and then the benefits to um, our business relationships and our consumer relationships. I guess maybe we can look towards the future a little bit more now and where all of this is heading. Um, maybe the best place to start there is in thinking about some of these points about interoperability that Josh mentioned. Um, you talked, we mentioned at the very beginning of the call, um, BCRs, which are the binding corporate rules. I didn't put that in my acronym uh, explainer, uh, which is another transfer mechanism under um, GDPR. Uh, Cisco has its BCRs. And I know you, I think you said you did those after, um, you pursued those after getting your APEX certification. Were those processes really compatible for you? Are they really similar? Like how how different are those two things? Are they do they work together? Yeah, they're they're definitely more the same than they are different, and I, I think approach it slightly differently. Because if you look at the highest level in terms of privacy and the core principles that drive privacy law and privacy programs, it really anchors around the three of transparency, fairness, and accountability. And so that was the anchor or the three core principles for, for our program. And then you look at the APEC uh, privacy framework. And again, those just outline a, some more detail around, but still a very much principles-based approach to it. So they were focusing on the outcomes and the what they're trying to achieve with the robust privacy program. But under APEC, there's a lot more flexibility in terms of how you achieve those outcomes that, that are outlined in the framework. So that was a really good starting point. And kind of the argument is like, if you can't meet these principles for APEC, then 
um, you really need to revamp your privacy program. And if you can't satisfy the requirements for APEC, you're far away from uh, you know GDPR compliance or meeting the BCR uh, requirements coming out of the EU. And so looking at APEC as a starting point for a principles-based approach, um, we hit that first. And timing-wise too, again, it was much faster to go through a APEC review, even with uh, a deep uh, assessment, it took about 10 to 12 weeks. Whereas if you tried for binding corporate rules from point of submission, it takes at least a year. And now the backlog is uh, two or three years or longer. And so we needed a quick way to validate uh, the program. So they're definitely interoperable and there's nothing inconsistent uh, uh, between the two. Uh, BCR and the European frameworks are a little bit more prescriptive and will ask for uh, more specific language that they want to see in a contract, even giving you the standard contractual clauses and a template. Whereas on the APEC size, this is, you just need to have a contract, right? That outlines these main domains, but not really give you the language that you're expected to use. Right. And I think that fits into kind of the big picture of, uh, it's interesting to hear you talk, contrast, uh, the CBPR framework in that way and how, and, and the flexible baseline approach that it has. Josh, I don't know if you um, could speak more to whether that is compatible with your understanding of, of the, the idea behind all of that. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it is. And it and in fact, I mean, it was the once and hopefully future way that th things were going that way. Uh, maybe just kind of a callback to uh, some work that was being done by the APEC data privacy subgroup and the old Working Party 29, which is the precursor organization to the European Data Protection Board, the EDPB. So this would have been back during the EU directive days. Membership, of course, in the Article 29 consists of the privacy regulators in the, in the European Union uh, member countries and DPS, data privacy subgroup in APEC, consists of the relevant government officials in the APEC countries. They took their two frameworks. They took the BCR process and they took the CBPR process and mapped them uh, just as a one-to-one, -one, just to look to see where was their commonalities, where were their divergences. It wasn't a debate as to who has the better idea or what is the superior approach. It was just simply a factual analysis. And what that resulted in is what was called a referential this common referential, it's still publicly available, although now it's a little dated because it was keyed to the BCRs as under the directive, as opposed to BCRs as under the GDPR. Uh, but what it did is it provided a rough guide for those elements of commonality between those two systems. And what was supposed to happen, or at least what had been intended to happen in the future, was that that work would continue with a series of practical tools for those organizations like Cisco that wanted to say, use a CBPR certification and those elements of commonality that were identified in the referential as a basis for their BCR. And in this way, it would speed up uh, the BCR approval process. Of course, it could work the other way too, where you would have had a BCR that would have been demonstrated elements and those could have been put into service in your CBPR certification. And so what was conceived of at the beginning, what was called a dual certification process. Um, now, this work all got put on ice uh, after Schrems in the invalidation of Safe Harbor. Uh, and then, of course, with the GDPR, that further bogged everybody down. 
but I'm very optimistic that eventually those conversations can pick up again. And there's a couple of new places that the working party, or excuse me, the data privacy subgroup and APEC and the EDPB can begin to look to identify commonality. So the first of those is within codes of conduct, which is another instrument that might be used for transfers out of uh, the EU. The second is uh, certification mechanisms that are now in the GDPR, which were not in the directive. Uh, as those are developed, we might be able to take a look at commonalities around there. And then, of course, to continue the work with BCRs. So I think there's three possible targets in the GDPR where you might be able to point the CBPR program and processes itself uh, and take a look at alignment, just a factual analysis. And really all we would be asking, and I say we, I say from the perspective of the accountability agent community, help us to identify where we have undertaken to prove out or get demonstration of a process or a policy where you would want that same demonstration. And where has that been sufficient as under our 50 program requirements as against uh, some element of the GDPR? Where we've identified those pieces of commonality, it should really then be something that uh, a benefit to the industry to be able to say, I've demonstrated precisely this here. Please create a common collection point to allow me to repurpose that demonstration over there. Uh, Now, this is not going to result in a single global certification, but of course, we know that we're a long ways off uh, uh, any kind of system like that, if ever. But what this does do is it facilitates a kind of a two-step approach which is better than a 50-step approach or a 100-step approach. And so I remain optimistic that those conversations will be able to start up again, uh, especially if they are successful in renegotiating, relaunching a new privacy shield. Well, Josh feels optimistic, which is always a big surprise. But um, Harvey, I'd be interested in your thoughts on that, especially with that idea of what um, of a global of interoperability, kind of the, looking towards the future, Will that continue to be something that we can work towards? And how do we continue to respect local differences as, as we get more privacy laws on the books and everything? Yeah, I, mean, I definitely share Josh's optimism, which is <laughs> surprising in this space. But we've been pushing for it, those of us in privacy you know, for the, the last decade or so for greater interoperability. And if you look and think about the notion of privacy being a fundamental human right, it's more the same than it's different or should be, right? If this right is fundamental to humanity, there should be greater consistency in terms of how it's approached. And we've seen um, too, like with the Asian countries, many of them writing privacy laws or updating theirs, uh, there's greater alignment to GDPR or it's, GDPR is always the starting point or a reference point, even if they're gonna go different from it, like China's new law that came out, right? They they studied GDPR and deviated deliberately in certain areas, but the core rights of the individual map pretty closely. And right, we're seeing more and more Asian countries or APEC economies achieving adequacy with the EU, right? Like with New Zealand having it longstanding, right? And Japan getting adequacy a couple of years ago and Korea's opinion just coming out um, more recently. And so we're seeing a harmonization or interoperability taking place at the legislative level. And so these laws are aligning. And so we are, we're hopeful that uh, the regulators will get together with their GPEN or Global Privacy Enforcement Network or GPA, the Global Privacy Assembly, and really look for ways to ensure a safe, you know, free flow of data 
globally, right? Because we're all in this together in a sense, and you need that interoperability and free flow of data to participate in the economy. So do businesses have to sit and wait for those regulators to do what you just laid out, Harvey? Are we, what is the right path for businesses that are kind of watching for interoperability and waiting? Is it, um, are there steps that can be taken to help move toward that world that you both have just described? Yeah, I mean, in some sense, I think Cisco has it a little bit easier in that we are a B2B company, right? And we've been hammered by our customers long before GDPR came into place in terms of being crisp, um, explaining what we're doing with data and being transparent and giving our customer that level of control that they're demanding, right? And cascading those individual users or data subject rights into our product features and functionality. And so I think in in that sense, um, I don't think we have to wait. I don't think businesses need to wait. If you think about what are what is the law actually trying to do and you kind of do that legislative history or look like what is the outcome and what are we trying to accomplish with these laws? And compliance, again, is just the, the floor and just the starting point. Um, there's so much more to doing privacy. And if you're doing privacy just for compliance sake, I would argue that your program is doomed to fail. Like there's so much more and, and the law just can't keep up with technology. And again, like at its core, it's really about transparency, right? Say what you do and do what you say, have the controls in place to honor that. And I think if companies focus on that, I think the rest of it falls into place. Yeah, well, we certainly are aligned on that thought and I really appreciate your leadership there. Um, I guess, Josh, do you have any more? I think this is a good optimistic uh, tone in which to leave the leave this episode of the podcast. Um, I'd like to hear from either of you any closing remarks, maybe starting with Josh. Yeah, I would just say that, you know, whereas there's a lot of um, hope for increased convergence and harmonization in the future, the current state of affairs is, as it involves the privacy policy landscape, I mean, Harvey and that privacy statement that we opened this episode with I think demonstrates what you can make of the current situation. And so to the extent that we are in the universe that we are in, um, I think the Cisco example is, is a fantastic one of, of what you can make do with, uh, with, with the way that the laws are now. Yeah. And I would just say, don't get bogged down in the complexity of the 130 plus privacy laws out there and all these different ways to approach it. If you, go back to basics, right? And think about transparency, fairness, and accountability. That will take care of most of your, your issues, right? If you think of kind of healthcare and the space that, that we're in, everyone's anchoring back on basics. Sleep more, exercise, have a good diet, and you'll stay healthy. So kind of using, going back to basics to simplify the complexity. It's the self-care model of privacy governance. I like it. Um, right. I think that's a good, a good way to to conclude. Well, thank you both for for your time today. I really have appreciated having you on the podcast, and we appreciate all of your insights. And thanks for tuning in to the BBB National Programs Accountability Studio podcast. We will see you next time. <laughs>